for joining us on this Labor Day weekend. My name is Joe and I get to lead our student ministries here at our Norwalk campus. And I, I have an announcement for you. I want to let you know about an event coming up. Uh, many of you may remember Daryl Strawberry. He was uh, some impressive stats. 17 years, he was a Major League Baseball player. Eight times he was an All-Star, four World Championship Series, and National League Rookie of the Year. And he was also suspended three times by the Major League Baseball Association for substance abuse. And his addiction actually almost completely brought him down. But eventually, Daryl found recovery, and he found faith, and he found hope, and he found redemption in God. Now, we know that there are many lives in our area, in Huron and Erie and Ottawa counties and all over Ohio in our country that have been affected by, by substance abuse. Maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe that's somebody you know. I don't think that there's many people in this room that have not been touched in some way uh, from this epidemic that we're dealing with. It's, it's in the news just about every day. Well, we, we want you to come to this. We want you to come to this event, and we want you to invite someone, maybe somebody you know that, is, that has been touched by substance abuse in their life. This is going to be Sunday, September the 8th, from 6 o'clock to 7.30 p.m. at our Sandusky campus. Doors are going to open up at 5 o'clock, and the admission is totally free. So we would love for you to come and be a part of that next week. And, and I love this story of Daryl. The reason is, here's why. I admire people who grew up in Christian homes. They went to Christian school, maybe even Christian college. They grew up in the church. And the reason is, is that they often don't have to deal with the consequences of a lot of poor decisions that people like Daryl have made in their life. However, there is something to be said about people that have gone the wrong direction, that have made a mess of their lives, that have gone into the gutter, and God pulls them out of that gutter, brushes them off, and does something incredible with their lives. Because I think that people in those situations may sometimes have a greater um, understanding or maybe even appreciation for the grace that Jesus offers us. And that's who I am. That's who I am. My story is a little bit like Daryl's. I've had some rough areas in my past, and I want to tell you about one of those today. I want to tell you today about the time that I was arrested on felonious assault charges. Now that I have everybody's attention, <laughs> we're in this series called Habits, Developing Spiritual Disciplines. And today we're going to talk about celebration. And I really am going to tell you about me getting arrested, but I want to tell you why first. Uh, I was reading in Psalm 77 on Wednesday, and it caused me to celebrate right in the quiet of my family room at 5.45 in the morning. Um, that's when I do my, my chair time, my devotion time. I've got to get it in before anybody else is awake or it's just not going to happen. But I was reading these words, and this is the first two verses of Psalm 77. It says, But then I recall all you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts, and I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. And I started remembering how God had brought me from where I was to where I am literally today. I mean, the fact that I am on this stage sharing God's message with you is absolutely incredible if you look at where I, I come and where I've come from. And I started to look at some of the celebrations that I've had in my life, like the birth of my kids. You know, I don't really cry easily, but uh, if you've ever seen your child being born, there's just something that just pulls those tears right out of your eyes. I think about my wedding day. I think about 
getting accepted into college, or even better, graduating from college. And I think about, I think about becoming part of the team here at the chapel, the Cavs winning the championship in 2016, am I right? I mean, I was sitting in my chair and I jumped up, I couldn't keep it in, I was so excited when they won. You know, I think I celebrate, you know, like Dunkin' Donuts coming into Norwalk. It's like the great things that God has done in, in our world. But one memory stuck out to me as something that I want to share with you today because it reflects something greater as it relates to us and Jesus. And so I want to tell you a story. I'm going to try to tell you a 30-minute story in about three to four minutes. So hang on. Here we go. So I, I you know, I've told, talked many times about this I. I had a bit of a rough past. You know, I worked in, I worked in bars for about eight years of my life. Um, and, you know, one of the bars that I worked at for the first five years was a very rough place. You know, it was no, it was very common for us to have one, maybe two fights every single weekend. And so we dealt with this all the time. You know, I learned how to, how to fight, how to defend myself. And we had a security team for these types of things. And one night in particular, these two guys came in. And as soon as they walked in, I knew that we were going to have a problem. Because they were just, their attitude was just terrible. And so I let my security guys know to watch out. And sure enough, probably within about 15 minutes, there was an issue. And so I get my security team together, and we go over and we start talking to them. And as soon as we started talking to them, things got violent. And, you know, one of the guys, I was behind him, and, and so I grabbed him, and I had one arm around his, under his arm, and one arm around, across his chest, kind of around his neck. And then one of my security guys, he, he kind of had him by the legs. And we're physically carrying this man out through the door. And as we're going through the door, I, I lose my grip, and so does my security guy, and the guy falls, hits the ground, and hits his head on the ground. He passes out. He gets knocked out just like that, unconscious. And it was only for a few minutes. He, he wakes back up, and, and an ambulance came, and at that time, he was walking around already telling how he was going to retaliate against me. And, you know, the police came. We fill out our statements. No big deal. We had done this many, many, many times. So a couple weeks go by. I'm laying in bed on a Monday morning, and a sheriff comes to my house, and, and I knew him, and he knew me, and he was like, hey, Joe, you know, I have these papers, you're going to have to come with me, and I'm like, okay, no, whatever, I'm, he's like, it, it was like, is this about that fight? He said, yeah, so I go and I put on a suit, because I like, got to go talk to a judge, and so we get out to the car, and he's like, hey, I have to cuff you. I'm like, what? He's like, well, I didn't want to cuff you and have your neighbors see it. I'm like, okay, so I'm in the back of the car, and he cuffs me, and he doesn't drive to the courthouse, he drives me to the jail, and I get out. And uh, they have to take my mugshot, my fingerprints, take pictures of all my tattoos. I had to give all of my belongings over. Um, they, I had to change and shower in front of, of a, corrections, a corrections officer, which is a very humbling thing. And then uh, I give them all my possessions. They give me a pillow, a blanket, a toothbrush, and an orange jumpsuit. And then they usher me into this small room, and I'm on camera on a video conference with the, with the judge. So now I'm in court. And, you know, the judge looks at the file, and he's like, okay, he realizes the establishment is a problem all the time. And so he's like, okay, fight at the bar. He's like, okay, you've been, you've been, you're being charged with second-degree felonious assault. Uh, the maximum sentence is two to eight years in prison with a $15,000 fine. Uh, we're setting your bond at $15,000. That's it. They pull me out, push me into the cell block, and I'm the only guy in an orange jumpsuit in front of a room full of guys in blue jumpsuits, all right? And I walk in, and I'm saying, okay, there's one, two, three, four guys that I had thrown out of our establishment in the past couple months. Okay, I'm like, this is not going to go well, right? And so I just make a beeline to my cell, and, I, and I'm sitting there on this concrete slab, and I'm like, what in the world just happened? 
An hour ago, I was in my nice warm bed on a February morning, and now I'm in a cell, and nobody knows where I am, all right? And like, nobody knows I'm in jail. I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I go down, and I start talking to some of the inmates, and they're talking to me, and I knew one of the guys, and he showed me how to use the phone, and so I start calling, making some phone calls, trying to figure out what's going on. I, I called the owner of the place that I worked, and, you know, they didn't have $15,000, and so I'm pleading with my parents, you know, and they were able to, like, I don't know if they put up their house for, you know, a line of credit or whatever, but they had to come up with $15,000 in cash and bring it down to the jail to, to bond me out. And so I get out. I was only there, thank God, for about a half a day. And I started doing some research. I went to the police department. I got the witness statements. And I realized that one of the witness statements said that as we were going through the door, that I violently and maliciously threw this man onto the ground, which caused him to pass out. And the witness, I knew. He used to be one of my security guys. And so I called him, and I was like, hey, guess where I was today? <clears throat> and uh, I was like, I was in jail. And he's like, what happened? I said, well, you wrote this on your witness statement about the fight a couple weeks ago. He's like, well, that's not what really happened. I'm like, I know that. He's, I'm like, why'd you write that? He goes, well, I, he, he had gotten fired, so he didn't like the owner of the establishment, and so he was thinking that that would get him in trouble, maybe like a civil suit. And I was like, no, it got me in trouble, and now I'm looking at felonious assault charges. So I had to hire an attorney, and as we started go, talking with my attorney, my attorney thought the best thing to do would be to plea bargain for lower charges. And I'm like, but I didn't do anything. And they're like, okay, but if the prosecutor is willing to drop or to, to lessen the charges, you should probably go with that instead of trying to fight a felony. Because if you don't win that, you know, you're looking at prison time. And so the prosecutor is willing to go with a first degree misdemeanor. And I'm going to have to spend potentially 10 days in jail, pay restitution, be on probation for a year. And I was so frustrated because I hadn't actually done anything wrong. But I didn't want to fight, I didn't want to risk fighting a felony and then going to prison for two to eight years. So we accept the plea deal, and I'm in the, I'm in the courthouse, we sign the plea, and I get my sentence, and we're walking out. As we're walking out, I see the witness that wrote the false statement in talking to the prosecutor. And I asked my attorney, I said, hey, what's going on? He's like, I don't know, don't do anything, let me go check. Goes in and comes back out about five minutes later, he says, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to withdraw your misdemeanor plea, we're going to take it back up to a felony level, we're going to send it to a grand jury. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. So we do that, and I come back out, and I'm like, what happened? He goes, he goes your witness went into the prosecutor's office while we were in their plea bargaining. He said, if they're in their plea bargaining, you have to stop this because he didn't throw that guy on the ground. That guy fell on the ground. I lied on my statement, which could have got him in a ton of trouble. And so they sent the case to the grand jury, and they told the, the investigating officer to re-examine the witnesses, re-examine the scene, go over everything that happened. And on a Friday afternoon, about 2 o'clock, I get a phone call from my attorney. And he's like, hey, Joe, I just want you to know that the grand jury has examined everything, and they've decided that what happened didn't happen, and so you've been acquitted of all your charges. Amen is right. And I'll tell you what. That moment of celebration was one of the greatest moments of celebration that I've ever had in my entire life, to know that that sentence was taken, was no longer hanging over my head. And, and here's the redeeming story behind all of this, is that the witness throughout the years was, was seeing me on social media, on Facebook, and he had seen how like God was working in my life, and, and he wanted to reconnect with me, and he reconnected with me, and we ended up going to church together, and he gave his life to Christ, and he became the best man in Marlena and I's wedding. Yeah. And my parents got their $15,000 back, too. 
And let me tell you, as great of news as it was to get that phone call on that Friday, that news pales in comparison to the realization of the acquittal and freedom that we have and that we receive through Jesus. Yes, because I had two to eight years of my freedom being threatened to be taken away, whereas we have this sentence of eternal separation from God, eternal punishment that is taken away from us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's incredible. And there's a point of me reminiscing with you this morning. It caused me to wrestle with a question that I want to pose to you. That question is this, is why do we struggle to celebrate what God has done and is doing in our everyday lives? You know, this makes me think of so many times in the Old Testament where people took time to celebrate. They built stones of remembrance and building stone structures, and they were costly and they were time-consuming, but they recognized the importance of remembering what God had done in their lives. And I wonder just how many times in the, Saul, in the Psalms it says to remember or I will remember. Why is it that we celebrate the big events in life like like winning a championship or somebody getting married, and yet we approach our daily life as this grind that we just have to get through. And Christians, why do we so often forget the incredible grace of God that the Father has shown through us through Jesus Christ? You know, did you know that children smile an average of about 200 times a day? I don't know, my, my, my toddler, Mac, he wakes up smiling. Like, he's just happy to be here, okay? I'm not smiling until like my third, maybe fourth cup of coffee, right? He's just smiling all the time. Children smile about 200 times a day. Adults smile about 400 times, or I'm sorry, about, about 20 times a day. And studies vary on that exact number, but the point is that the older we get, the more of a chance we, we see life as a duty rather than a delight. And instead of celebrating the good, we tend to focus on the bad, and it even warps our view of life, and we end up becoming cynical. And so the bottom line, what I want you to remember today is this is that we will, we will live a life of either cynicism or celebration, and we can choose which way we decide to live. And God's word has something to say about this. You know, in the book of John, chapter 15, we read that Jesus is getting ready to take his final journey to the cross, and he's using that time to, to teach his disciples. And in the midst of his farewell address, Jesus tells them this. He says, I have told you these things, that you will be filled with joy, with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. And, and I just want you to let you know that I'm going to use joy and, and celebration interchangeably today because joy causes us to celebrate. And, and I want to show the distinction between joy and happiness. Joy and happiness are wonderful feelings to experience, but they are very different. Joy is consistent, and it is cultivated internally. It comes when you make peace with who you are, why you are and how you are, whereas happiness is, I'm sorry, who you are, why you are and how you are, whereas happiness is external, externally triggered and is based upon other people, things, places, thoughts, or events. And so here Jesus is saying something profound, that there is a way that we can live in such a way where we have a source of unending joy in us that will flow out of us into the lives of other people. And by the way, this joy isn't based on good circumstances. Joy is a settled confidence of who we are, who God is, that God loves us, that God is good, and that God is in control. Joy is not produced in us because life is going well. 
It can only be produced when we have a grasp of who we are in Jesus and we have a grasp of Jesus. We cannot manufacture joy. I truly believe that only Jesus can create joy within us because joy is a fruit, a fruit. It is something that is produced. And, and look how Jesus over and over again in these, the verses before this show us how we can develop this in our lives. He says this, he says, remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit, and, one, and this fruit, one of them being joy, if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Jesus says, yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verses 4 and 5. And then in John 7, he says this, But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want, and it will be granted. And then last, John 15, 9 and 10 says, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Remain, 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 remain. Over and over and over, Jesus is saying, remain in me. So, this, so in this verse, Jesus is referring him as himself to the vine. And the, for the branches, the vine is the source of life. It's where a branch gets what it needs to survive and to grow and to thrive. I mean, think about the fruit that you have at home. In our basket at home, we've got apples, bananas, we've got some blueberries, and I've got some grapes. Now, they're fine right now. But if I, we don't eat them within a few days, what's going to happen? They're going to start to shrivel up. They're going to turn brown. They're going to wither. All right? Because why? Well, because they're no longer connected to their source of life. Once they're cut from the branch, the clock starts ticking. Or think about Wi-Fi. You only get Wi-Fi if you're close to the source. If I go out in, the, in, my, in my driveway or out in the parking lot here at the church, we lose that connection. And Jesus is saying the same thing is true about him, that when it comes to the Christian life, there's one way to do it, and that's to stay close to him. And if you've heard me teach for more than a couple times, you've heard me just repeat this over and over and over, but there's no other way to live the Christian life. The Christian life is not trying harder. It's not pretending to be happy. It's not trying to be religious. It's staying connected to Jesus and letting his life flow through us. Jesus is not saying try to be happy, pretend everything's okay, have no bad days or seasons, put on your smile on Sunday morning. No, no. He's saying, stay near me. Jesus never expects us to fake joy. We really are like branches. If a branch is removed from its tree, it'll hang on, it'll stay green for a while, but it will produce no fruit, and it's going to wither because it's not connected to its source of life anymore. Consequently, we, like branches, have to stay connected to Jesus if we are going to produce fruit. Well, what is this fruit? As Paul talks about in Galatians 5, and 23, he says that the fruit of the spirit, of God's spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Joy, which, which joy then produces celebration. And so it is absolutely critical for, for followers of Jesus to remain in him. The main purpose of this whole vine and branch metaphor is to stress our dependence upon him. So let me ask you this. Are you staying close enough to Jesus to, for him to produce fruit? Are you staying close enough to Jesus for, to let him remind your heart of the joy of what he has given you, the joy of the cross, the joy of the resurrection, the joy of the new life that we have in him? These are things that will only happen in your life by staying close to Jesus. We don't change. 
People don't change, but Jesus changes people. But we don't often live like this, right? We don't often live as though we experience this joy. And that's not a new problem. That's a human problem. Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 4 before this, he says, he says to the early church, where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I remember when I first became a Christian, I was just on, it was like ignorance on fire. I didn't know why I was so full of joy, but I just knew that I was happy that Jesus had saved me and he was going to change my life. And it seems like as life goes on, though, that joy sorts to, sort of plateaus and maybe dips down as other things in life tend to creep up. There can be things in our life that cut off God's supply of life in us, which robs us from bearing fruit, which robs us from joy, which affects our ability and desire to celebrate. And what happens as a result? The result is cynicism. Cynicism is an attitude characterized by a general distrust. A cynic may have a general lack of faith or hope in life or people. Seeing life as ultimately meaningless. We all know people like this. Maybe you are this person. What are the things that cause this? What are the things that cause cynicism in our life? Well, I, I wanted to t- share with you three things. I think there's a lot of things, but three big ones. And the first one is complaining, which I think complaining is the universal language of human beings. You know, are you a complainer? Let me ask you this. They just repaired the, the railroad tracks on Benedict Avenue, which took about a week. How'd that go for you? <laughs> right? Were you just overjoyed that they were doing that, that you had to sit on Linwood Bridge for 10 minutes? You know, I saw it on Facebook. People were just complaining, complaining, complaining. And I'm like, they're fixing a problem. It shouldn't take this long. Why do they have to do it this time of year? Like, they're doing it. Have you been over those tracks recently? They are nice. Like, they are so smooth. Yeah, we had to sit in traffic, but it's interesting that we always look at the negative side. I'm a part of a group on Facebook called the Talk of Norwalk, which I'll be honest, I joined just for entertainment value. <laughs> but as I've been a part of it, I get depressed because I see the heart of humans through it, and it seems so negative. Somebody had posted on there that they were excited because Cedar Point is going to offer a gold pass for $99 for their 150th year. And there was just a list of people complaining. Oh, that's, that's just, you know, it's going to be so busy now that you won't be able to ride on any of the rides. Oh, that's just so they can get you in there to pay for their overpriced food and drink. And I'm like, come on. This is a good thing. We all do it, don't we? We all tend to look at the bad side of things. We all tend to complain. And here's the danger of complaint. Complaint is questioning God. It's an indictment against God. Paul Tripp says this, Complaining is never just horizontal. Every complaint has verticality to it. Embedded in complaining are questions of God's wisdom, his nearness, his compassion, his faithfulness, his goodness, and his love. Complaining says this, it says, I deserve better. When we complain, we insert ourselves into the center of our universe and we make, we make life all about us. When we don't get what we want, immediately when we want it and how we want it, we complain. Complaint is the audible representation of a heart captured by the claustrophobic kingdom of self. 
And what happens is it affects others because people no longer become people. Now people are objects that are there to, to make our world go, go well. And they either help it or they, or they take away from it. And so if people aren't helping you and your little you universe, and I'm including myself in this, then what happens is we become short, we become angry, we become less patient, and we don't see them as other people created in God's image. We just, we just see them as a problem or an inconvenience or a nuisance. And then we start focusing on the, on the negative and ignoring the positive. So that's one thing. The second one is busyness. This can also lead to cynicism. Are you a busy person? I want to ask, I think all of us are. Let me ask you why. And I don't mean what makes you busy. I want to ask you why are you busy? What enables your busyness? Are you, do you take on extra work? Because you're afraid that if you only put in 40 hours, that God isn't going to provide for your needs. So you push yourself, you take time away from your family, you do whatever it is in order to try to make ends meet or to try to establish the American dream, and you're so busy. Or are you, are you an upgrader, right? Like for me, I never really looked at trucks until I got a truck. And now I'm like, well, maybe I need an F-250, or maybe I need an F-350 dually in case I ever have to haul a car trailer. I don't know. Like, it's just dumb, right? There's nothing wrong with my current vehicle, but now you started looking at how shiny the other ones are. Maybe your house, you've just kept rebuilding and adding and remodeling and upgrading. And because of that, you have to put in extra work and all of the maintenance required. And you're so busy that you're grumpy. We get so consumed by the worries of this life because we're trying to keep up with this status quo. Or maybe you, 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 take on, you, you commit to so many different events or plans because you don't want to let anybody down because you're a people pleaser and so you're overcommitted or you let your kids do any and every event and social thing and extracurricular and club that they want to do because you're afraid to say no because you don't want them to be upset with you and now you're so busy as a family that you don't even know each other anymore. We're so busy trying to maintain this American dream lifestyle that we don't even have time for joy. Jesus addresses this. He talks about the parable of the sower and, and the farmer who throws seed on four different types of soil. And then he goes on to explain it and he explains this soil. He says, now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but are all too quick, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. There are some of you in here who are going to hear God's word, which I, I pray that I'm delivering faithfully and you're going to hear it and you're going to agree with it. And you're like, that's good. That's motivating. That's inspiring. But as soon as you walk out these doors, it's back to real life and busyness and trying to keep up and trying to make ends meet and trying to keep the yard mode and all of those things. And you don't have time to actually let this fruit produ or be produced in you. Jesus goes on, he says, the seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 60 or 30 or 60 or even 100 times as much has been planted. Matthew 13, 22 to 23. Jesus is saying that this life can choke out that fruit, which one of those fruits is joy, which leads to celebration. And one of those things is busyness. The next one is comparison. Do you get jealous when you go to someone's house that's nice, nicer or bigger than yours, or is that just me? You know, if someone is doing better than you or has more than you or is cooler than you or better looking than you, do you are you quick to explain why? 
Like, well, they have this, or they have that, or their parents did this. Oh, I can't do that because I'm so-and-so. Instead of just celebrating and saying, that's awesome, right? And why do we see ourselves as so important that it actually even matters anyway? We get so caught up in what we have or what we don't have that you forget what Jesus has done for you. You forget who you are in Christ. So how do we fix this? How do you live a life of celebration? Well, there's a few things, and I think that one of them is that we need to rediscover the gospel every single day. I think that some of us have been following Jesus for so long that the, that the beauty of the cross, the beauty of, of the resurrection, the beauty of Jesus' life has sort of just become old to us, right? It's, it's no, it doesn't amaze us anymore. But yet the gospel gives us hope, hope now and for the future. You know, happiness is gonna come and it's gonna, and it's gonna go. But when we have this settled confidence that God is in control and God is good and God loves you, that's incredible, and I'm not minimizing suffering. I'm not minimizing it at all. You may, going through, you may be going through some very difficult things. This past week, we, we were at the celebration for the life of Val Bressler, who is a very important person and a friend to so many in this church. And I would never go up to somebody who is grieving that loss and be like, come on, just smile. Just, you know, look at the bright side. There's no bright side. But in those moments, don't forget don't forget your future. Don't forget your hope. Don't forget that Jesus took our punishment. He took our sin. He took our death on the cross. And three days later, he came back to life so that we could have life not just now, but forever. That's the beauty of the cross. And maybe it sounds weird to say the beauty of a cross, which, is, which was an instrument designed for torture and execution. But, but like me being acquitted of my charges... We are all acquitted of eternal separation from God and eternal punishment because of Jesus, because of what he's done. We have been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we've been saved, we've been given new life now and forever. We have become children of God through Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And if that really sinks in, you'll never have a joyless day again. If you remind yourself of that, you'll never have a reason not to celebrate. And if you, can't, if you look at that and it still doesn't stir your heart, I don't think anything will. And so here are, three, here are three things that I want you to do on a daily basis. I want you to start them today. I want you to start them tomorrow. Number one is go back to the gospel. Don't ever, ever, ever forget your salvation. Remember the cross. Remember your acquittal. Stay connected to Jesus. Remaining in Jesus begins every day, every single day, and throughout the day. We talk about the row, the circle, and the chair. The row is this. It's being together on a Sunday morning, worshiping together as a family. You know, when you're here and the worship songs are playing, sing. I know we make it so easy for you to, to stand there in the dark with your cup of coffee and just, and just look at the words. Or for me, you get distracted. You know, I'm like not looking at the words. I'm like, is Mike really playing two basses? <laughs> but look at those words. Let those words sing in your heart. Sing those songs. Maybe you've been there and you've been so caught up and God's spirit is moving you to raise your hand, but you don't raise your hand because you're afraid of what the person next to you is gonna think. Forget that. Put your hand in the air. Sing. Sleep at home. Come here. Be ready. Worship. 
Be, when it comes to the circle, which is a small group, if you're not a part of a small group, we want you to be a part of a small group, a small group of people that you can grow and live and share life with. Be open, be reliable, show up, and be willing to get into the mess of other people's lives and let them get into the mess of your lives so that you can hold each other accountable and encourage and help each other grow and produce that fruit. And then lastly, the chair, which is what we call your time with Jesus. You might call it your quiet time, your devotion time, which is when you and Jesus get together and through prayer and through the reading of his word and through meditation on scripture, you become close with him. See that as imperative, that I don't care if you have to get up an hour early, that that is the most important thing that you could do, that if nothing else gets done that day, you've put in your time with Jesus because that's the most important thing you can do. Rick, Rick Warren said that if you accomplish everything on your, on your task list for a day, but you don't draw closer to God that day, that day is a waste. And here's why. In 100 years, the only thing that's going to matter is your relationship with God. In 100 years, none of us are going to be here. Maybe a couple little kids. 200 years. <laughs> 200 years, none of us are going to be here. 200 years, none of us are going to be here. The things that you've done in this life, outside of building your relationship with God, will not matter anymore. So make that the most important thing that you do every day. And then stop and celebrate even the little things. Stop and celebrate when God does something good in your life. Not just the good in our lives, but can we celebrate the good in other people's lives? I love when we go on short-term mission in Mexico because it recalibrates everything for me to help me realize how good we've got it here. I come back from Mexico, and I'm like, look at these roads. They're so smooth. It's beautiful. Look how shiny the cars are. Like, you don't understand. The fact that we have, a, that we have bathrooms that you would take your phone into because you want to spend some time in there is incredible. Like, in Mexico, you spend as little time in the bathrooms as possible. That, like, I come back from Mexico, and I'm turning the water on and off. I'm like, look at this. I can drink this. This is incredible. My kids hate it. They're always like, all they hear for months afterwards is in Mexico. Like, Dad, I'm thirsty. Well, in Mexico, they got to drink dirt. Like, you don't get it. Like, we have it. What I'm trying to say is we have it so good. We have it so good. God has done so much in our lives here. We don't realize how good we have it sometimes. I was reading this, or I was listening to this book by Corey Ten Boom. It's called The Hiding Place. And her and her sister, Betsy, were in concentration camps in World War I. And it really rattled my faith because I, I realized, like, wow, I don't really have the, the faith that they have. They had it so bad that they were praising God that their barracks were infested with fleas because that meant that the guards wouldn't come into their barracks and beat them. If they can praise God for fleas, then we can praise God for construction on a road. Stop and ask God to help you to see joy, even joy when something's going wrong in life. You know, it's always a perspective issue. When, when things are going bad, we don't see the whole picture. You know, we would celebrate if, if a life was changed and brought, if somebody was brought to Jesus, right? Well, what if it was our struggle that draws that person to Jesus? Would it be worth it? Absolutely. Again, I'm not trying to minimize pain, but there can absolutely be joy in pain. Kerry Newhoff says this, if you want to kick cynicism in the teeth, trust again, hope again, believe again. It's the gospel, the cross of Jesus, and the resurrection that, that frees us to trust, hope, and believe again. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for today. 
God, thank you for what you've done for us. God, if you never did anything for us other than our salvation, we could still never thank you enough for what you've done. Jesus, I pray that we walk away from here today celebrating in joy who we are in you, that we are freed, that we are redeemed, that we are saved, that we are your children. And may we never have a joyless day again in Jesus' name. Amen.